question, how many people do you think works in the building? Or I should have put this way, how many people have passes that permit them to enter the building and work in it? And it's in excess of 17,000 passes. So the building already accommodates almost 20,000 people. It then has visitors on a daily basis who enter the building of something, I think, uh, between seven and 10,000 visitors every single day. That's nonstop, round the clock. So there's visitors to that building every single day. Outside the building, is then, of course, is hugely attractive to tourists and to the, the photographers. Uh, so it is a huge tourist attraction in its own right, but it's a living, working, functioning parliament, the mother of parliaments, for goodness sake. And that's why it is so interesting and why we would want to get back. And of course, it's free to, to, to enter the building. So it's not as if it's a, a tourism mecca that you have to go and pay to enter. It's free and uh, it is definitely worth seeing and to educate our young people. There's a wonderful schools project which takes place every year. I meet school groups probably every couple of weeks from my own constituency from across the UK who visit um, Parliament um, every week and uh, learn about democracy and the democratic process. I think that uh, we, we have to capitalise that and build upon that. So it, it is a building which is well used by the public. And if, big if, you had to relocate out of it temporarily, and if you know that was maybe your last term as a parliamentarian, would you be prepared to sacrifice that to be somewhere else in Whitehall perhaps or even across the Thames in order for this well, well, great building to be to be refurbished extensively? But well, well, what I would say is that this should not be about the parliamentarians. It would be very selfish to say, oh, for someone to say, oh, an MP say, oh, this is going to be the, possibly the last time I'm here. Um, therefore, I must have this. You know, we, we, we look after this building for future generations and then we pass it on. We can't have a situation where we allow our personal desires to take over what is in the best interest of that building for future generations. And so if, if MPs are having that as their trick, you know, I think they're wrong. And I've, I've said that there is a way of doing it that, to make sure that on the average space of time where, where a parliament lasts about four years, you could have a situation where as you enter for your first of the four years, you're in the old building. And obviously the election would take place and those MPs would either stay or some would move on. Um, but the new MPs who then would get elected in year four of the repairs would then by their second year of the new parliament uh, of their new parliament be in the new building. So it would mean that uh, parliamentarians would, for each generation who are elected and for each parliament elected, be eventually in the, uh, the, the repaired building. So I don't think anyone actually loses, and we, we have addressed that particular issue. But that, of course, depends on them being able to do the work and do it promptly and efficiently and for bigger problems not to highlight. But all, all it says, just, just think of the morning... We wake up and there's been the Notre Dame moment, Henry, and people then turn around and say, well, why didn't you take responsibility and fix this thing? Why didn't you avoid this from happening? You know, the, the alarm bells are ringing. 16 fires in the last dozen years. Surely someone recognises and colleagues recognise we now are behind the clock in terms of acting on this. 
That's Ian Paisley Jr. MP talking to Henry MacDonald on Constructive Voices. More on that story in just a moment. Coming up, Pete the Builder talks about his work on an historic building in Ireland. But first, Henry's second guest, architecture critic at the Observer newspaper, Rowan Moore. The House of Parliament is an enormous building. It's 1.2 million square feet, which is bigger than the tallest tower at Canary Wharf in terms of square feet. It is quite an old building, mid-19th century building. It has a basement that runs the full length of the building, which was originally part of a kind of ventilation design. Uh, The architect of the House of Parliament, Charles Barry, created this system of sort of vertical ducts and then this great big basement and air was meant to flow around it to cool the place down and get rid of of waste air. It never worked brilliantly in that respect, uh, but what it became a very convenient space for putting in any kind of pipes and wires that was needed for electricity, central heating, air conditioning, CCTV, the internet, all the new technologies that have arisen in the last 150 years or more. The result of that is this absolutely extraordinary kind of like something out of the movie Brazil, this sort of vast undercroft of pipes and wires and gaffer tape and hazard signs and which has never been overhauled, which has equipment that has passed its sell-by date or its use-by date, I should say. People don't entirely know which wire connects with what. No one is able to say with complete confidence that it will not, not catch fire one day, in which case the this Victorian system of ducts and voids between the floors would be rather susceptible to encouraging the spread of fire around the building. Now, they have put a sprinkler system in, which helps, and I am assured that the risk to human life is not too great. Uh, it has obviously it has to be passed. The relevant authorities have to approve it; otherwise, it would not be allowed to continue as a place of work. Uh, however, no one is really saying with any confidence that the whole building would not suffer a very significant and destructive fire. And in your article, um, I mean, you point out last year there were fires, weren't there? Yeah, there, have fires, been a number of, there have been a number of fires over the last few years, mostly pretty minor. But as we know from Grenfell Tower, which started with a piece of electrical equipment, or indeed the Great Fire of London or the Great Fire of Chicago, very big fires can start from very small sources. And, and Andrea Ledson, the Conservative MP and former leader of the House, has raised the fear that it could be like Britain's Notre Dame. It could be a sort of very famous historic building that suffers a catastrophic fire. And and this is not new news. People have been saying this for decades, really. People have been pointing out with sort of increasing levels of urgency that this, this risk exists. Of course, it's very hard for anyone to say, you know, to put a percentage on the risk, how likely it is to happen. But it's definitely not an ideal situation at the moment, on top of which you have things like asbestos. Um, well, I found this incredible. When you, you wrote that in your article, I, I was gobsmacked. How, how much of an asbestos risk is there? Well, there is a lot of asbestos down there following as a result of post-war reconstruction because the, the building was damaged by bombing. And asbestos was a commonly used building material in, in the decades after the war. 
Um, well, no one knows how extensive the asbestos is. The thing about asbestos is it usually doesn't do anyone any harm until it's disturbed, until you start, you know, cutting it or disturbing it in some way. But that, you know, that will be necessary, and it is sometimes necessary to do that in all, you know, as a part of repairs and maintenance and so on. And there was an asbestos leak, um, I think, last year with over 100 people affected by it, which means um, both building workers and people who work in the Palace of Westminster, which I believe means they will have to have health checks for the rest of their life to make sure, you know, they're not seriously affected by the asbestos. So the significance of the asbestos is also that it adds to the complication of doing anything about about uh, this this situation. And there's also been sewage leaks, uh, failures of the sewage system. Uh, Meg Hillier, who was one of the MPs I talked to, said in parts of the building there's this sort of permanently stinky smell, as she put it, as a result of poorly functioning sewage arrangements. Uh, and then very recently... There was a leak in the roof of the House of Commons chamber of water, which required it to be temporarily closed. The other thing I should say is, and this is not a new thing, is is that the uh, access for people with impaired mobility is very, very poor because it's a building that's sort of inspired by monasteries and cathedrals and medieval town halls, which means it's got lots of beautiful staircases and changes of level and so on, which, of course, are not so great if you are in a wheelchair or have difficulty walking. That problem's been there since it was built, but with kind of modern standards of access, that is also something that needs to be put right. What can be done about it? Well, firstly, it is this world-famous monument, a very beautiful building, most people would agree, with a quite extraordinary amount of decorative detail, carving paintings, carved wood, special wallpaper, I mean, almost every detail is a kind of crafted one-off. And so therefore, any kind of repair and restoration has to respect all of that. And then if you compound the complexity of the service arrangements that I just described with the need to respect and restore the historic fabric, those have a multiplying effect on each other, which means that the cost for repairing the building is extraordinarily high and so what has actually happened is there's been a very very slow process going back certainly to early in in the last decade and really before that of very slowly inching towards a recognition that this work has to be done but because it's very politically sensitive because no politician wants to be the one who tells the public that a very large amount of taxpayers money has to be spent on MPs place of work there's really a lack of leadership of, of anyone saying, standing up and saying, you know, this has to be done and this money has to be spent. Can you quantify the sort of oh, figures right, okay, So um, the current estimates for the cost are in the range of 7 billion to 13 billion. Good God. These are still very, very approximate because there still needs to be a lot more work to be done of surveying and assessing the fabric and working out what actually has to be done. Um, but those are the current estimates, which is an incre- you know, a really enormous amount of money, given that the recently completed Elizabeth Line in London cost around $19 billion. Of course, the Elizabeth Line figure is in the past, and the House of Parliament figure is in the future. So 
inflation comes into this. But even so, for the restoration of a single historic building to be in the same ballpark as a massive piece of transport infrastructure with 200 million passengers a year is you know, very hard to take on board and, and to comprehend. And of course, you would hope that those figures will be extremely rigorously scrutinized. But um, at the moment, there's no particular reason to think that it can be done for less than that. The other very important factor is that the recommendation of the experts is that the MPs and the Lords move out of the building while construction works uh, take place, because obviously it's much easier to do that if they're not there. So there are various proposals for them to move to some temporary accommodation elsewhere. And the estimate for how long they will be out has risen from six years to, I think it could be as much as 20 years, but certainly between 10 and 20 years. And that is very traumatic for MPs because you know they're a very big attraction to them of being an MP in the first place is the opportunity to work in this incredible historic place where great politicians have been before them. So the idea of working to a sort of porter cabin version of the Palace of Westminster is not appealing. And there are other MPs and, and lords who say, well, you should care about the job, but you know, the job is what counts and not where you do it. And you know, you should accept wherever you have to end up. But that's undeniably a very big factor. So 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 this seven to thirteen billion figure emerged early this year, along with you know the latest estimates on how long MPs and Lords will have to move out. And that proved unacceptable to certain politicians. And as a result of that, they they wound up part of the uh, structure that was supposed to deliver the whole project. So in 2018, it was agreed there would be a structure similar to the one that delivered the London Olympics, where you have a um, delivery agency and you also have a sponsor body that kind of acts as a client on the part of Parliament. And the sponsor body was meant to be a kind of arm's length organisation precisely so that it wouldn't get tangled up with internal politics of the Palace of Westminster. It was the sponsor body that delivered the bad news about the budget and the decant time. And then it was decided in February that the sponsor body should be wound up. This was decided by the uh, House of Commons Commission, which is a sort of powerful committee that's got the Speaker of the House of Commons, Lindsay Hoyle, on it. It's got the Leader of the House, um, currently Mark Spencer. It has various other MPs on it. But it's, it's not very accountable and public in what it does. But anyway, they had the power to announce the winding up of this agency of the sponsor body and there's a new proposal which is that the work is taken more in-house and that there is essentially a parliamentary group that takes on the role of the sponsor body. Um, the trouble with that is twofold. One is just the loss of continuity from, you know, you, you set up a body to do, do a job and then if you wind it up, you know, that creates problems of handover and continuity. It delays the process still more, and it also raises the risk of political interference that the sponsor body was precisely created to to avoid. Um, so this doesn't really look like a very positive step 
It's going to be kind of piecemeal reconstruction in little bits and bits here. Well, and so yeah, so Mark Spence, the leader of the house, told me that it's like he made the comparison of a young couple buying an old, sort of falling down historic house, and they don't have all the money to pay for the work immediately. So they do the work very gradually over years and decades when they have the money to do it. The only problem with that is that obviously the longer it takes to do the work, the greater the risk. You simply multiply the risk per year by the number of years it takes. And also all the work done on the project so far says the more slowly you do it, the more it costs. I mean, there's there's another aspect to this, which is the House of Pond do have an in-house maintenance team Possibly a good thing about this new arrangement could be that the sort of ongoing maintenance that happens anyway could be more meshed with the grand capital project. That's an advantage that was sort of presented to me, and I, I haven't really sort of looked at that in enough depth to know whether that's true or not. But one can see that is a potential advantage about the new arrangement. And how many workers um, will, it, will it kind of attract need to do this? I mean, have they estimated this kind of workforce that will be employed to? to do this bit by bit kind of reconstruction oh there's a few issues there. i mean one is that if you if, if you have all this interruptions and loss of continuity and delays then in terms of the kind of expert consultants and contractors who you need to deliver a project like this they're less likely to hang around waiting for something to happen so it becomes harder to keep those people on board in terms of the people doing the actual construction work, I mean, one of the challenges is how do you actually find enough people with the relevant skills in stonework and in caustic tiles and all the other kinds of detail to actually do the work? So the project would probably entail a pretty major training program to build up skills in, in those areas. That doesn't fall under the category of mismanagement. That's, that is just part of the challenge of doing the job, basically. I mean, it sounds very much internally as much as part part of the exterior, but internally as chaotic, shambolic as British politics seems to be at the moment. It's kind of it's kind of almost like a a symbol of the kind of way well, it's British politics. Just, it's not just at the moment. There is an academic at the University of Sheffield, Alexandra Meekin, who's done a thesis on on this this, this whole renewal program. She points out that the sort of fundamental problem behind all of this is a kind of structural, not in terms of building construction, but in terms of organisational structure, which is that there is not really a clear hierarchy of decision making within the Palace of Westminster for the care and maintenance and protection and upkeep of the building. So, you know, there are various parliamentary committees, there's the House of Lords, there's the House of Commons. So there's just not the kind of management structure you would have in a well-run business for dealing with these kind of issues, on top of which, because it is a political place, decisions are very highly politicised. So Andrea Leadsom claimed to me politicians from other parties than the Conservatives were sort of deliberately unhelpful because they knew that that would make the government look bad if they if they sort of failed to deal with the problem i have no idea how much truth there is in that allegation those allegations but that's the kind of issue that arises when you have politicians trying to uh, make decisions about a, about a building 
And as I said before, it's, it's an incredibly tough ask politically to go to your constituents and say, this much money has to be spent on our place of work. And, and the public reaction is always going to be, this is MPs spending money on themselves, which is not actually entirely fair because the real issue here is, is the significance of the building as a historic building. So even if MPs were moved out of the building and never came back, the building would still have to be restored for heritage reasons. So that's really why it's so extraordinarily difficult, even though people have been pointing out these kind of problems for a very long time and the problems get worse. This is why it takes so long for anything to happen and why it's very stop-start procedure. And something that Dr. Meekin points out is that we have been here before, around 200 years ago, or a bit longer than 200 years ago, MPs back then were saying that the old Palace of Westminster at that time was a fire risk and also had various other hazards associated with it. And um, in 1834, it did indeed burn down. The old Palace of Westminster was destroyed which is why we have the building we have now, which was built as its replacement. You know, I can't say for certain this is going to happen. And, you know, maybe it's, we can be reasonably optimistic that it probably won't happen, that the whole building will burn down, but that possibility cannot be uh, dismissed. You and know, if really... you were making a comparison with another parliamentary building, I mean, a good example would be the Bundestag, the way it was reconstructed. I mean, it's a yeah. kind of a blurring contrast, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, of course, the Bundestag was a ruin, destroyed, you know, very, very seriously damaged in the war. So, of course, that that gave more of a free hand to the replacement. Whereas with the Palace of Westminster, it, if it doesn't burn down, we have this intact building with, as I say, just a, a huge amount of of decorative detail. Most people would want that to stay. I mean, I did actually do a little piece in last Sunday's Observer where I asked the question whether absolutely every last bit of Victorian wallpaper has to be reconstructed, given that this is such a you know, very big rock and such a very hard, hard place that we are stuck between. There are corridor after corridor of, and room after room and courtyard after courtyard of ornamental Victorian space that the public almost never get to see. So I was just gently raising the question, would it be a terrible thing if in some of these kind of backspaces of the building, they didn't go the whole uh, full restoration and did something simpler? That's pretty controversial in terms of heritage and how you're meant to treat a grade one listed building and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But you know, that that's possibly something they should look at. And the only alternative is simply to admit this is what it costs, this is how long MPs have to move out, and just bite the bullet. The 7 to 13 billion figure is not certain. It's not based on comprehensive knowledge. And certainly it should be very robustly challenged, but it does seem quite possible that it's real. There was an earlier figure of 4 billion that was estimated in well, I think 2013 or thereabouts by KPMG. It seems likely we are talking about a lot of billions, come what may. I suppose whether it's 7 billion or 13 billion during a cost of living crisis, that would be very hard to sell to the public, won't it? Well, it is. It is really hard. It's politically almost impossible, but 
if the work has to be done, it ultimately has to be done, and it's for the politicians to find a way to square it off politically. And maybe it is a question of, you know, setting out what goes what's paid per year, so it's not sort of one gigantic bill. I don't honestly know the answer to that. I, I'm just pointing out there's a very big problem here. And as you said at the start, and it, it was kind of a headline in in your big big investigation. Overall, mm. this could be. UK nations Notre Dame moment once that's not that's not that is not excessively scaremongering to say that there is definitely a risk to the building fabric quite a significant risk and and no one really disputed that that I spoke to some people sort of disputed you know the degree of risk no one said no it's fine we don't have to worry about it so yeah it's real so I understand the predicament that politicians are in about the cost, where I'm more critical of at least some politicians. I mean, there are some politicians who behave very well and honourably in this, but what I find hard to take is, for one thing, the endless sort of tinkering with the the way it's delivered doesn't seem very helpful. Uh, I mean, just to disband the sponsor body because they didn't like what they were hearing doesn't seem very clever as opposed to, you know, grilling the sponsor body and really trying to get them to step up and answer questions. And the other is this thing about moving out. If an MP or if MPs and Lords have to move out for a long time, which will mean that some MPs might spend their entire parliamentary careers not yes, in the Palace no. of Westminster, then I'm sorry, but that's just too bad. You know, if 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 there's this huge, huge headache that is going to cost a lot of public money, whatever way you look at it, the MPs have to take some of the hit on that. Not having a kind of um, neo-Gothic masterpiece as your place of work, then that is just quite low on the list of priorities that we're talking about here. This is Constructive Voices.